Good morning, church. We come today in our study of the book of 2 Timothy to the last chapter. You'll remember, if you've been here with us uh, through our study, that this is the last book that Paul ever wrote. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and as we will see in this chapter, he anticipates his execution to come soon. So what we're considering this morning in this last chapter of the last letter he writes, these last words to his young protege are the very last words that he can ensure will reach Timothy before he passes. And as such, you can imagine, the the intensity and the intimacy of this letter are are taken up a notch in this chapter. You you can really feel the Apostle's passion as you read through it, knowing that his words must now draw to a close. There isn't anything entirely new in this chapter. In fact, there's so much continuity between chapter 3 and chapter 4 that some have suggested removing the designation of a fourth chapter altogether. After all, the chapter designations in Scripture aren't original to the text anyway. And as we explore the the continuation of Paul's thoughts from chapter 3 into this one, what you see is that the chapter before us this morning is made up of three parts. Each of these parts are instructive, but only the the first comes in the form of a command. The other two come by way of the Apostle's example to faithful Christians. These parts can be broken down as as follows. Preach, persevere, and prioritize. Preach, persevere, and prioritize. As I meditated on the Apostles' words this week, I was reminded of a a quote from a well-known old saint who said in 1910, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And friends, as true as that was of the American church in 1910, that they were looking for better methods, it is all the more true today. You can read about church growth strategies and quote-unquote necessary ministry innovations until you are blue in the face. And, And all of them will tell you that as a church, you either innovate or die. But what's unequivocally clear from the scripture this morning is that Paul is not concerned in the least with anyone from Timothy onward innovating ministry methods. Paul's desire is to build a man that is shaped by the unchanging methods that God has determined are faithful. And not just men, but Paul desires that churches would be built that are shaped by the methods that God has determined are faithful. And and those methods are carefully defined preaching, perseverance, and priorities. So uh, let's pray together, and and then we're going to consider how the Lord would would shape us through these elements of the text. Pray with me, will you? Lord, we ask now that 
by Your Word, You would instruct us, Lord. That You would help us, God, to become the kind of people that are faithful to the end. Lord, the, the kind of people that fulfill the ministry that You have given us. God, we ask that through the influence of Your Word and the power of Your Spirit, You would build in us the character necessary to remain faithful and steadfast to the end. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Continuing the line of thought from the previous chapter, Paul begins drawing his final words to his son in the faith to a close. In the previous chapter, Paul made clear that persecution will make for difficult days in the life of a Christian. And he says that the key to remaining faithful and spiritually healthy is to be devoted to the Word of God. And it's that idea that Paul now builds on in his final words to Timothy, aiming with some specificity toward Timothy and more, more broadly to all pastors of Christ's church, Paul says now with great solemnity, I charge you. This word charge that Paul uses there was a military term. It signified a, a superior officer issuing orders to a subordinate that could not be refused. What was being commanded was not up for discussion or consideration. It was only to be obeyed. Paul says, I charge you. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. This, friends, is a formal summons that Paul is making to Timothy, calling the first two members of the Trinity to witness and the seriousness of the command is heightened all the more by the reminder that the Lord Jesus will judge the works of all men on the last day. This echoes what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, which tells us that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This in mind, Paul issues the command to preach the Word. The term preaching here was not new to the New Testament. Paul was borrowing this, this term, this idea really, from the culture of the day. It meant to herald a message. The king would have messengers that he would send out to herald news to the kingdom. That they would go into the marketplace, into the provinces, and the far-reaching corners of the kingdom to proclaim whatever, the new, whatever news the king commanded them. These men were giving a specific message. One that they were not to deviate from, add to, or take anything away from. Once these heralds had given their message, delivered it, they were to report back to Caesar. And, and in reporting back to Caesar, they were to tell him exactly what had been told to the people. And if they deviated from the message that they were assigned, it would cost them their lives. And with Paul, excuse me, with, with Timothy, having been gifted by God to teach and proclaim the Scriptures, Paul says, this is what you are called to do. 
And I want you to notice the content of what Timothy, along with all men with this particular gifting, notice what they are called to preach. It is the Word. That is, they are to proclaim the holy, inspired, and inerrant words of the Old and New Testament. Not their own thoughts and ideas. No, pastors are to preach in the way that we read about back in chapter 2 and verse 15. Preachers are to rightly or carefully handle the word of truth. And Paul here goes on to describe what this looks like. And he does this by first issuing another command. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Which is only to say that the preacher should stay ready. In season and out of season covers all the seasons, right? And the readiness that Paul speaks of is is drawn from the idea of a a soldier being battle ready. You you can picture the, the soldier fully alert, sword drawn. That, friends, is what the pastor is to be like. Ever ready to dispense and explain the word of God. And to that end, Paul further commands not just the readiness of the preacher, but the manner in which he is to make use of the scriptures. Look at verse 2. He commands Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, we could walk through what each of these mean, but the truth is, if you've been with us the last few weeks, there's really no need to do that because we already walked through these elements. You see, Each of these, if not the same word, is a word with parallel meaning to what Paul used in chapter 3, verse 16, describing what the word is profitable for. Look back at chapter 3 and verse 16, and you'll see the way Paul described the nature and the usefulness of the Scriptures is copy and paste how they are to be preached. And that gets at the bigger point, friends. The the bigger point is this. The faithful pastor not only preaches the word, but he says what the word says, how the word says it, and for the purpose that the word was given. He does not lift the words of Scripture out of their context to advance his own agenda. No, he lets the nature of the text govern his address. One preaching professor states it this way, faithful preaching is that which represents to the church the substance, the structure, and the spirit of the text. And he could not be more right, because biblically, the pastor has no inherent authority in himself. He he has only a delegated authority, you see. The, The pastor... His voice carries authority and merit only insofar as it is in lockstep with the Word of God. Because it is the Scriptures and not man which are to reveal the mind of God to us. So Paul says, this, Timothy, is the kind of preacher that God is looking for. The Apostle says that Timothy must commit himself to to this kind of preaching. In light of what Timothy and all pastors 
will encounter. He says, look at the text. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When Paul says the time is coming, he fully anticipates that Timothy will enter into this time. And like we saw back in chapter 3, the opposition Paul is warning, warning Timothy of here is not outside the church, but inside. The idea is that even within the church of the Lord Jesus, there are no shortage of false converts that can't stand biblical preaching. Instead, they will choose for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Instead of what's healthy for them to hear. The phrase, turn away from, in the original language is, is actually a term used by doctors to refer to body parts that are dislocated and put out of joint. The idea is that these people turn away from healthy teaching of Scripture to that which is more palatable but doesn't lead to spiritual health. So, Paul gives the description of what this time to come, this time that we now live in, he gives a description for what this time is like, but what's the, what's the prescription for weathering then this time? Well, he's already given it. The pastor must preach. Verse 5, you see, is the apostle doubling down on what he's already commanded of Timothy. He gives some details as to the manner in which the pastor should carry out his preaching. But each of these all flow out of the command to preach the word. So in contrast to the spiritual weakness that Paul says will abound, he says, as for you, pastor, always be sober-minded. Simply meaning... To have a clear and unhindered mind. The pastor is to bear suffering, Paul says, as has been the refrain throughout this letter. In light of the clear realities of unbelievers sneaking into the church, the pastor should do the work of an evangelist within the church. And in the flow of Paul's thought, all of these are carried out as the pastor employs the prescription for ministry at all times, which is to preach the word. It's as though Paul is saying, Tim Timothy, people are not going to want to listen all the time. You preach the word. Timothy, people are going to want to, you to tell them things that are not in the Bible. Timothy, you preach the word. Son, you preach the word even when it means that the number of your church might be lacking. Preach the word. And Timothy, in this way you fulfill your ministry. If you'll give yourself to consistently and faithfully preaching the word, you will fulfill your ministry. 
You'll not let anything be lacking in your ministry. That's what that idea of fulfilling your ministry is, is to not let anything be lacking. And Paul gives him all the encouragement here that you, Timothy, might fulfill your ministry if you simply preach the Word. the, The reminder here of enduring opposition in ministry, it really leads into Paul's next point, which is to persevere. Now, Paul makes this point and the third one by way of setting an example. He doesn't say, do this. He tells Timothy what's been true of himself, trusting that what the apostle has already said about Timothy will continue to be true. Remember the way that the apostle gives a commendation to Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 10, saying, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. And in trusting that Timothy will follow his example, he tells his son in the faith that he's about to die. But not just that he's going to die. He says that he is giving his life as a sacrifice in service to the Lord. That's what's meant when Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul's borrowing here from Old Testament imagery. In the book of Numbers, under the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, it was commanded that the people of Israel offer to the Lord a burnt offering, a grain offering, and then finally a drink offering. In referring to the time of his departure in this way, Paul is saying that he is now indeed offering his very life as a final sacrifice to the Lord. And make no mistake, it was his perseverance in preaching the gospel that led not long after to his beheading. He continues on in this vein of perseverance in verse 7 by underscoring the importance of preserving the pure doctrine of the gospel. He says that he has kept the faith. And it could be argued that Paul here is referring to having persevered by God's grace in his personal faith in the Lord Jesus. But that's not likely. It's not likely, particularly given the context where throughout the letter, Paul has consistently emphasized to Timothy the necessity of preserving the gospel message. You'll remember right out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And Paul says now, Timothy, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done. And he uses a couple of analogies to speak of his completion of this most difficult task. Really, verse 7 should be equally encouraging and edifying to Timothy. You see, Paul acknowledges the the difficulty of the task by way of using metaphors that are strenuous in nature, yet he comes to the end of his life and he can say that with God's help, he's done it. He has fought the good fight, he says. He's finished the race called ministry. And and there's something worthy of note here concerning what what it means to fight the good fight. Look at verse 7. And notice with me that Paul does not point to any measurable result of this fight or race other than the fact that they're completed. Paul is about to die. 
But the gospel message is intact. The, the doctrine hasn't been perverted. And Paul says, this, Timothy, is the good fight. The goodness of the fight, you see, has nothing to do with the number of souls won. It has nothing to do with the size of Timothy's church or the scope of Timothy's ministry outside the church. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with how the people in Timothy's church receive his message. That's been clear throughout the text. No, in God's evaluation, the goodness of the fight is intrinsic to the fight itself. All that's necessary is to keep in the fight. To preserve the truth of the gospel message. And friends, please see, Paul is writing to Timothy, a pastor, and, and he's telling pastors here to preach the word. But please see that this particular reality extends beyond the pastoral office. This is the fight that all Christians must engage in. We have to engage in this personally, in, in our homes, in our workplace, at the ballpark. We must all fight to preserve the gospel message. When your kid tells you that you either accept them for who you are or, or excuse me, accept them for who they are or you don't love them, will you squish on biblical doctrine and tell them, well, it's no big deal? Or are you going to do the hard work of not allowing them to define the terms and the work of reorienting their understanding? of love, so that they understand that the most loving thing you can do is give them the truth. When the mom at the park says that she's so glad that her kid has become a Christian because they recently repeated the prayer after the pastor at church. I'm not sure they really understand what sin is, but oh, praise God, they prayed that prayer. Are you going to tell her that Repentance of sin is essential to conversion? Or are you just going to hope that that conversation comes up with somebody else? Or worse yet, are you just going to be content to let her believe that that's what the gospel is? A ticket to heaven based on mere knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. These are hard conversations. They're necessary but the apostle in no way minimizes the difficulty of them. That's why he uses the term fight, which in the original language is related to our English verb to agonize. The faithful life as either a faithful pastor or a faithful Christian is a life of perseverance. And perseverance by nature is hard, friends. In season and out of season, there is no off-season. And that's why, in verse 8, Paul sets his eyes joyfully on what is laid up for him in heaven. Namely, the, the crown of righteousness that will be awarded to all those who have loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Though the life of faithfulness comes at great cost. Christians are ready to pay it because eternal righteousness has been purchased for us at great cost to the Lord Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus secures a reality for us that we can hardly perceive and we certainly can't purchase. This is the essence of 
the Apostle's perspective throughout his ministry. You remember what he said years earlier in Romans chapter 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, when the days are difficult, we must persevere in our witness to the truth. But catch what Paul's saying here. The key to perseverance is to focus on the eternal prize, not the earthly persecution. And with that, Paul turns to make some personal requests of Timothy. But even in the requests that he makes of Timothy, the the apostle continues to teach us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. The last thing the apostle challenges us to consider simply by way of his example is our priorities. In his final words, Paul asks Timothy to come to me soon. Luke was with him, according to verse 11, but, but Paul has already said to, uh, of Timothy in chapter 1 that he longs to see him, that he may be filled with joy. So, just in case you were tempted to think that the example of the apostle can sort of be put on the shelf, and we can just conclude that he was beyond normal human thinking and feeling, we see here that that just isn't true. With only one co-laborer by his side, the old, weary, imprisoned apostle is lonely. The verb used in reference to Demas, that he deserted Paul, is a strong word that's used to speak of an abandonment that leaves one helpless. And in the final days of his life, this is all we know of the apostle, that he was suffering alone. And in verse 16, Paul further elaborates that at his first court defense, no one came to stand by me. He had no one to testify on his behalf or or even emotionally support him as he faced capital charges. No, again, we are told of those that could have been there that they all deserted me. Now you may ask, what does this have to do with the apostles' priorities? I thought that was the last thing we were to observe from the passage. And that's true. The exemplary priorities of the apostle are the last thing we should observe from the passage, but those priorities can only be truly appreciated in the context of what a destitute situation the apostle was in. It's in this state that the apostle asked for Timothy to come, simply for comfort and joy, That's not all that's on his mind. It's in this, his darkest hour, look at verse 11 with me, to see what the apostles' priorities were. He says for Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for what? Ministry. After a lifetime of gospel labor that has landed him on death row, even after telling Timothy that he's finished, he's finished the race, he has as his priority to use his last days to do all that he possibly can for the advancement of the kingdom of God. The story of Mark and Paul is 
one that's interesting in and of itself. It's, it's certainly worthy of your own personal study. But here, we're, we're left with the clear example of what finishing the race faithfully looks like. And that is, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you are to prioritize the advancement of the gospel message. And this is only logical. That, that, that until your dying breath, you labor for the gospel. Because gospel labor is the reason that you aren't just beamed up to heaven the moment that you're saved. Remember how the, Paul, how the apostle frames it in Ephesians chapter 2. After giving a, a glorious explanation of the sovereignty of God in saving wretched sinners like us, what does Paul say? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Gospel ministry is the reason you exist on this earth. No matter what stage of life you're in, gospel ministry is the reason that you exist on this earth. But we understand something else from the Apostle's priorities as he continues. In verse 13, we read that Timothy was supposed to bring Paul's cloak so that if he lived to see wintertime, he would have some protection from the cold. And beyond that, he, he says to bring also the books and above all, the parchments. Frankly, we can't be certain about what the, the books are. They're potentially copies of the Old Testament. Less ambiguous to us is what Paul calls the parchments. These were expensive papers that would have been used to write and preserve Holy Scripture. So what Paul is asking for, above all, in his dying days, are copies of the Word of God. Now, this could be for a couple of reasons. Conceivably, he, he could be planning before he dies to edit portions of Scripture that he had written. Or he could be asking for the parchments for the nourishment of his own soul. Just as he'd ask for a cloak so that he could have some comfort from winter's cold, so he could be asking for the Scriptures so that his soul would have comfort in what could be a very cold spiritual season for him. Either way, whether the parchment were to serve as tools for ministry or tools for personal devotion, what's clear is that Paul's priority all the way to the end was, to use his words, above all, the Word. Be it the work of the Word or worship through the Word, he desired nothing more than the Word. And with that, we come to the end of the Apostle's instruction for Timothy. He gives some final greetings and he closes his letter there. Now, it was for Timothy to take what Paul had given and by the help of the Holy Spirit embody these things. I said at the outset earlier that the church is looking for better methods while God is looking for better men. And the apostle has outlined for us 
what sort of persons the Lord is seeking to build His church. Those who would preach, those who would persevere, and those who would prioritize in these ways. Now, Timothy, having spent much time with the apostle, would have understood that that these things are not unattainable. These are within grasp for the Christian. He would have watched the apostle struggle at times and then soar at other times, all the while becoming the man that could say that he had fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith. But lest we be tempted to think that such things are beyond the possibility for those of us whose names aren't recorded in the New Testament, I'd like to close by considering the life of an American who fits the description that Paul's given here pretty well. In 1904, a Christian named William Borden graduated high school. Borden came from a wealthy family and as such, as a graduation gift, was given a a cruise around the world. And while on this cruise, Borden became burdened for the lost. He became burdened specifically for the lost in the East. And he determined on that cruise that he would become a missionary. When some of his friends back home learned of this, they, they criticized him. And at, his, at, at their criticism, excuse me, Borden wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Meaning that he would refuse to hold himself back from service to the Lord. When he returned from his trip and began college, he gave himself to studying the Word and to prayer and to evangelism. And upon graduation from college, he refused several high-paying job offers and he renounced his family's wealth. It was then that he added two more words to the back of his Bible. It, It now read, No reserves, no retreat. Then he went on to seminary. And upon completion of seminary, his seminary studies, he sailed east to minister to Chinese Muslims. Borden got to Egypt where he contracted cerebral meningitis and died within a month. Now one may be tempted to think, oh, what a waste. Oh, He must have been so discouraged to have spent his life in that way, so sacrificially, and then to to not even reach the people you were desiring to. Oh, how awful it must have felt. But Borden apparently saw it differently. After his death, it was found that he'd written two final words in the back of his Bible. It now read, No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. You see, Borden understood something that the Apostle Paul was getting at in this passage. And that is that God does not evaluate His servants' ministries by their fruit. He evaluates them by their faithfulness. May we be faithful to the end, church. Amen. Let's pray.
And Father, that's our ask this morning. Lord, as we see the example of the Apostle Paul, and we receive the command from Your Word, I do pray, God, that You would, by Your grace, enable us to live out these commands, Lord. God, enlarge our hearts that we would be so overwhelmed by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we would give, him, give ourselves to the Lord Jesus in service. And God, let us not be sprinters that give ourselves for a time. Lord, God, give us what's necessary to fulfill the ministries that you've given us. And go the distance, God. Put wind in our sails. Give us endurance and strength to serve you until the end. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.